think particularly for Christian schools, they are at a massive advantage because the essence of the gospel is one where nobody is rejected. Nobody. Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews and today it's a real treat to bring you this thought-provoking discussion I recently had with a fellow called James Parker. I only got to spend a little bit of time with him, but he taught me a whole lot about celebrating courage and embracing individual differences and holding fast to God's truth. It's worth noting at the top here as well that this is probably the first episode of this podcast that will contain a content warning of some description. Not quite sure what to call it, but we discussed some pretty weighty matters in our conversation. So if you're the sort of person that listens to the podcast in the car with your kids, it might be worth actually screening this one first, at least. One of the big takeaways for me from this discussion was that every time God says no, and he does say no, there's always a bigger yes waiting behind. James actually goes on to say that Christians aren't killjoys, we're full joys. And we know that abundant joy, full and deep satisfaction and peace, they come from knowing and following Jesus. Now, I'll actually freely admit, when it comes to the area of sexual orientation and gender identity, there's a lot that I don't know. I do know enough, however, to know that these can be delicate and emotionally sensitive areas. So let me give you, uh, as the listener, an exhortation, an encouragement here. In fact, I'm actually going to give you two. Firstly, listen carefully to James' story. While he's very widely read and well-researched, he's come not primarily to share statistics, but to share a story. He shares of how he went from a man who was depressed and anxious to a man who's joyful and peaceful and content. No matter who you are or what you believe, that's a story worth celebrating. So I encourage you to listen carefully to his story. Secondly, if you have any further questions for James or even some pushback that you want to give him, he's generously agreed to come back for a Q&A episode at a later date if there's demand for that sort of thing. So I've included a few contact details for myself in the show notes. Make sure you fire those questions through. As always, James and I prayed for you before we began recording. We prayed that no matter how you are involved in Christian education, that God would use you to bring joy and peace and fullness to your community. That God would use you to bring his big yes into the lives of students from all walks of life. Well, James Parker, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you today, Paul. Now, am I right in thinking that you're from Western Australia? That's right, indeed. From the accent, I probably don't sound as though I am because I originate from the UK. But uh, Western Australia has now been home for me for the past 10 years. And I'm a, well, I say I'm a true blue Aussie. And I am, I, I, you know, I've already got my burial plot, mate. So that's, uh, this is it. Uh, Australia's my home and, and the West is where, where I'm permanently based. Good. I, I can't get enough of Australia. How are you finding it down here in Tasmania over the last few days? Oh, for, well, for a start, at the time of us broadcasting this and, and recording it, is um, uh, the weather's just been amazing. But I love the fact that you've got all four seasons here, whereas over in Western Australia, generally we've got winter and we've got summer and very little in between. And I kind of miss that spring and autumn feel that is constantly throwing itself in different ways that you hear in Tasmania. So I love it down in Tassie. Yeah, as I said, I, I cannot get enough of this place. I love it. Uh, now, you are known to me. You're known to many people, actually. You've got a, a large public profile. 
But for those who are tuning into this discussion who don't know your background, could you give us perhaps a, a cook's tour, a 30,000 foot flyover of who you are and what you're doing at the moment? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I am a child of God. And, and, I, and I say that because for much of my life, I didn't know that. I really didn't. And um, some of my core issues was a profound sense of self-hatred and self-rejection. Um, I'm a Christian man. I gave my life to the Lord in my early 20s. And what's significant about that is I was actually in a long-term gay relationship at the time that that happened. Um, I was searching for more love in my life. And my boyfriend followed suit and he followed suit in the sense that he too wanted more love in his life. So we became um, committed Christians. And there's a, a message, I think, even for listeners in that, in the sense that, you know, God sometimes plucks us or meets us at least in places we least expect him to meet us. And that he is a God of surprises and that there's nobody that's excluded from him. What I discovered in being in the, the gay community and being a gay activist is that um, for me and for literally hundreds of others, the LGBTQ ideology and agenda does not meet the core needs of people. It doesn't because it can't. Maybe a bit more about that later on. But back to my own story. Um, when I left the gay community, it threw me into therapy and it threw me into really deepening my own spiritual journey, my, my, my relationship with Jesus. And it was there with the Holy Spirit hovering around me and inside of me that um, I, in a sense, the light was turned on. Jesus says, I, I will be, I'm not just a light in the world, but a light in our own personal darkness. So he began to shine his light very gently into my past. And it began to show me that I'd got some severe deep wounding and trauma that dated right back to the womb. The fact that I'd been abandoned at birth with my twin sister, I'd been incubated, I'd been fostered, I'd been orphaned and then adopted. Um, I got major issues around my personality being interlinked with my twin sister, such that as I was growing up as a small child, I really did began to think that I was a girl in a boy's body. So I was struggling with gender dysphoria from a very young age. And because of that, that left me very, very vulnerable to lots of the sort of overt sexualization that's been happening in the last 50, 60 years in our society, certainly since the 1960s. Um, and I ended up being sexually abused, being exposed to pornography, and all of this before puberty. So post-puberty, I began to have a drink problem. I was looking for any way and every way to try and quell and to calm the storm, the raging storm that was going on within me. Um, I ended up being the first guy to come out at school, the first guy to come out at university. But as I say, the, the story doesn't end there. I, I met with Christ while in the midst of the gay community, stepped aside from that. I ended up dating women and coming in touch with my, really my, what I believe was my true male self that was there all along in the seed that God sowed in the first place. And it led me to get married. I ended up becoming a dad. And so um, talking to people in link with education is particularly relevant to me today because I've got a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, you know, sort of struggling like crazy in the midst of, of this whole issue of sexuality, gender, and identity. And interestingly, even though I've been doing this work for years now, it's only recently that my 13-year-old came up to me and said, Dad, I've never understood what you do. And I said, well, darling, sometimes I don't understand what I do either. But she said, but I'm beginning to realise how relevant all the things you do and say are to my friends and to my generation now. One of the things I love about your story, James, is it's a story of abundance. So what you've done is subvert the common narrative when I if I have to become a Christian if I if that's really the right thing for me to do what I need to do is I need to give up this thing and I need to 
give up that thing and I need to move away from these people and this hobby has to go. People often view that as a subtraction story. I go to Christ and I get Christ, yes, but I get way less. And one thing that rings true from your testimony is that you said you get more love. Uh, and that's that's the one thing that we all want. It's the one thing we need, actually, isn't it? That's right. And you said, actually, coming to Christ, it wasn't a matter of having to cast aside all these things that I held so dearly. Um, you're saying you actually got that thing that you wanted so dearly in abundance. You got more of it. I got more of it, and I got it. I got it in the way that was healthier for me. I mean, you know, and this is this is, I guess, the, the challenge of the journey with Christ for us today is that God doesn't. God isn't the God of no. God is the God of this big, massive yes. And particularly around sex and sexuality. And I mean, I said to teenagers in schools, I said, this is a really horrible thought, but every one of you is here today because of sperm and eggs. I said, that's where you started. You know, and they go, Bleh. I'm like, but it's true. And they, they realize, yes, that's my own genesis, mm. certainly from my humanity perspective. And so therefore what happens is with God, nothing is hidden from him. And wherever God asks us or wherever he says a no, it's because there's a greater yes. And I'll say this as well. That's one of my, the lessons I learned in parenting. You know, whenever I say to my daughter or to any child, if I have to say no to you, you must come back to me and say, well, what is the greater yes? And therefore, when they understand that I'm saying no to something now, it's because, of course, I want a greater yes for them. I'm not trying to be a kill joy. I'm trying to be a full joy in the time to come. Don't burn your bridges now, particularly around relationships and about your identity, that in some way or other is going to crucify or cripple you in the future. And we're seeing that now very clearly in the whole transgender story, which we might get onto a bit later. So you are dealing in this area of sexual orientation and gender identity, which in the, in the, at this point in time is a huge discussion that our culture is having. You seem to be bringing a relatively unique voice. But given that we're a production here that deals with education, what input do you have then into the field of education? What relevance does your story and your message at the moment have to uh, schools and families who are interested in education? I'll tell you what uh, relevance uh, my story and the many people whom I walk alongside and others who walk alongside me. We, we, are a, you know, we offer a support network very deliberately across Australia. We're linked in with 50 other countries across the world. And the difference in, in our narrative is that we give full choice. At the moment, what's happening through mainstream media and through politics and just about every other single field, including health, psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, is they're saying that there is only one way. If you experience same-sex attraction of any type, or if you uh, are questioning of your gender, your gender dysphoric, in other words, this is a lived reality for some people. And we're being told, well, we need to go with people's feelings. Well, the very thing I want to say is, yes, we have to acknowledge what people feel. But does everything we feel mean that it's legitimate, that it's okay, that it's good for us, that it's good for our neighbour, that it's good for society? And what we've come to understand, many of us who've dared to look beneath the surface and particularly beyond the LGBTQQIAAP plus 2S narrative and their ideology and their so-called theology, is that there's a whole another side of a story that our young people are not hearing. And yet 24-7, they're being hit 
with all sorts of different stories and things in, in, in whether it's being music or through uh, YouTube videos or whether it's just through Netflix and everything else, they're being flooded with all this messaging and it's only a one-way street messaging around sexuality, gender and identity. And the likes of myself and others are saying there is a lot more to this topic. And if our young people aren't fully informed, which is what education is about, giving them the best education, they can't make the healthiest decisions that they will need to make to be able to live as abundant and full a life as God has designed them to live. And if they don't believe in God, people who are Christians would want them to live whether they believe in God or not. One of the most helpful things you've said so far, I think, is, is actually taking it one step back from the question of sexuality and gender and looking at a, a broader paradigm shift that's perhaps taken place in the West over the last couple of years where we need to think about the question, is everything I feel good? Are all my wants good for me? And that's something that perhaps 50, 60 years ago, there would be a, no, of course not. And that would be, a, you take a cross-section of different races and religion and ages, and it's very well accepted that whether we're talking uh, sex, whether we're talking consumerism, uh, whether, whether we're talking any number of things, our desires are not necessarily what is good for us. There exists a category of thing which um, we desire but we push away or um, we train ourselves to desire something else because we know that something else is actually good for us and it's perhaps a lost art. I think, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, I mean very, very simply put, I, I cannot see a time in history and I love anthropology and, and, and all that stuff. And just, I can't see a time in history when change hasn't happened as rapidly as it's happening now, such that many people want to get lost in, in social media or just another movie, and, or they want to just bury their head in the sand, or hope somehow this stuff won't affect them, their kids, or their family home, or indeed their school. But this stuff does affect everybody. But there's been three key stages that we've moved through, certainly since the end of World War II. We've gone from a place of modernism where, in a sense, we've come to a place where we've realised there's something called science, there's something called reason, there's something called facts, and that, that we can be educated and illuminated through those things. But then we move to a place of postmodernism, and that said, well, I've got my truth and you've got your truth. So in some ways, we've moved away from what is an absolute truth. And then post-postmodernism turns around and says, well, I don't really care what your truth is or my truth is. This is what I feel. And therefore, this is what will dictate my life. And one of the things it's really easy to do as a teacher, as an educator, and even as a parent, is to overestimate the influence you have and to underestimate the influence of technology. In a school uh, that I've worked at previously, I got a bunch of year 10s to pull up their phones and show me their usage reports. And of course, some of these year 10s were on things like TikTok, six to eight hours a day. One guy I talked to developed what's, what's called a biphasic sleep pattern. He got home, he slept, he woke up at 10 uh, p.m., had dinner, used TikTok through to four, slept again, went to school. It's this sort of saturation that sometimes parents are unaware of. So when they think, you know, crumbs, I'm taking my kid to church every week for 90 minutes. They're going to school for six hours a day, five times a week. What they may not realize is while that's healthy, and I think God loves that sort yes, of discipleship, of there's actually a counter-discipleship. There's another breed of formation that's taking place, not only perhaps with just as much time, but with 
more intensity, with stronger messaging, more stimulation. They're being, the, many students are being counter-discipled in a different narrative. Now, it's worth pausing at this point because I can almost hear the objection. Uh, this is an education podcast. We have that purview uh, and, and the parameters set quite narrowly. There are going to be people out there thinking, Paul, you've made a mistake. This is off-brand. You've gotten far too political. This is not politics. This is education. And you muddy the waters if when we're talking about education, we start bringing politics into the mix. What would you say to that kind of objection here? I would say this, uh, and I'm, I'm desperately racking my brains as you asked me that question to remember which president it was. I think it was Lincoln that turned around and said, that the education of today forms the politics and the policies of tomorrow. And that's true of any policy we have. The adult politicians we have today, they are formed by what happened in their developmental years. So if our children are being developed by mainstream society and by social media and not having a balance, and I mean a balance, I'm not saying, you know, necessarily you've got to, you know, push the gospel down these kids' throats. In fact, I'd recommend you don't do that. But if they're not being equally exposed to what we have known for two millennia or for, for many millennia through, through Judaism as being some of the truths about our very basic humanity, if, if children aren't getting that or our young people aren't getting that, then they aren't going to be formed sufficiently to be able to, for us to be able to have a healthy society in years to come. Education, politics, spirituality... All of these things interlink together. So you're down in Tasmania at the moment, and one of the things that you're doing is you're actually doing some education with different institutions about the, the current report from the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute. And again, this is something as educators, although it directly affects us and it will have a direct bearing on what we're able to do, it can be something that as educators we don't worry about. We've got enough on our plates. You know, we've got our writing and reports and we're teaching um, flat chat. So when all of a sudden you get an email in your inbox, oh yes, the Law Reform Institute, so and so, and you go, I actually don't have the bandwidth for that at the moment. I feel like it's very... It's very easy for something to, to go from it's too soon to worry about and make a quantum leap right over to it's too late for us to worry about. You know, it's, it's too soon to fight, uh, it's too late to fight, you know. And there, yeah. was, there was nowhere in the middle yeah. where we were actually able to consider these things. So when it comes to the current report that is being shaped into a, a bill at the moment from the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute, uh, that's the report on sexual orientation and gender identity, um, for, the, for the parents listening at the moment and the educators listening within Tasmania, are you able to share some information about how that bill will directly affect them if it becomes law? Look, what's happened is this is, and, and uh, I mean, I've been, I've been keeping an eye on what happened in Queensland where um, and the, the bill became an act, so it got passed, in the ACT. Uh, where it got passed and in Victoria where it got passed and having read the TLRI report fully and its 16 recommendations um, one of the most startling phrases in the report says that no domain will be left unturned when it comes to letting people embrace any aspect of sexual desire attraction orientation or anything around gender now, many parents probably think there's 56 types of gender from Facebook. I'm telling you, there's well over a thousand. That's a lot of confusion for our young people when they are born male or female. 
And I even work with intersex people who get very, very angry that their I is in the LGBTQ acronym. They say, keep us out of this. You know, our stories are very, very different. The report itself is basically turning around and saying that should these recommendations be passed, that actually this could affect how parents have conversations with their children at the table. Now, I've spoken to senior politicians who said, oh, we'd never do that, we'd never do that. I'm like, why not? I'm dealing with families in Western Australia where their teenage children have literally been ripped away from their homes. There's been a knock at the door. The police have turned up and said, we're taking your child. We hear that you refuse to embrace you know, the fact that you're, you know, you've got a son, not a daughter. And that child has been taken away there and then. And the parents have been denied the opportunity to see their child. That child has become a ward of the state until they're 18. These are traumatised families. Now, we haven't got a law that's been proposed as strongly as what is being proposed here in Tasmania. So I'm very, very concerned what's going on. One of the things that will resonate with almost everyone who's listening to this podcast, and there's a wide variety of political views and social understandings, is the rights of the parent. Because baked into our understanding of education here, and a previous guest on the podcast, Tim Coy, has said it, is that God gave children to parents. He did not give them to churches. He did not give them to schools. He did not give them to governments. He gave them to parents. God has charged parents with the duty of raising their children. And of course, parents can partner with a school. And of course, it's great when they're a part of a church. And we have to integrate ourselves with a government. However, we can't help but see it as a backwards step if rights are taken away from parents. And just as you and I sitting across a table from one another now, if a family is gathering around a dinner table and there are government laws, if there's legislation prohibiting what a parent can say to a child, that can't help but be, as I said, a regression. My question here is about how schools can be as loving um, and promote as much flourishing and growth as possible for every student. Because teachers get into this profession often because they, they love students. They want to see them flourish and grow. And something that keeps us up as, at night as educators can be the fact that perhaps my practice is not well tailored to the different kinds of students in my class. Now, that might, there might be levels of neurodivergence there. There might be different intellectual abilities. There might be people at any, any different place in the sexual orientation, gender identity Spectrum. What can we as, as schools do to make sure that we are leading to the flourishing and growth of as many different students, as many different um, people on our campus as possible? Look, I think particularly for Christian schools, they are at a massive advantage because the essence of the gospel is one where nobody is rejected. Nobody. God's very clear in Isaiah. We've all gone astray like lost sheep. I'm talking to the adults here. The kids might not understand that. We need to find a vocabulary to help them to see life's very, very rarely, if ever, perfect. It's never perfect. It's never perfect on this earth. It just isn't. But that actually school respects every individual's journey. And it may well be there might need to be a sign or signage or some form of assembly or something that's discussed in house or whatever else it might be that turns around and says, you know what? Every one of you is so unique. We meet each one of you as a unique journey. We really do. So some people might use the terminology straight, but that might not fit some people. 
you know, and for, for young people, when it comes to sexual attraction, that's changing and changing all the time. It happens very early for some people. It happens much later for others. So rather than taking on a label of asexual at the age of 11, 12, 13, rather than saying I'm not interested in anything sexual, well, actually, that's quite healthy for a lot of 11, 12, 13-year-olds. But for some kids, by the age of 11, puberty is well and truly kicked in. And this is something that's starting to awaken, awaken in them if it's not been awoken already. So what can a Christian school do is this. It can turn around and say... We want to help you to walk your journey. And the word of God shows that actually when God is in the equation, there's greater light to be able to lighten your footpath, see where you're going. That if some of your pathways feel a bit wonky or a bit crooked, well, God's really good at straightening some of those out. He may not do them the way you want or perfectly. But we ask you to keep turning your gaze back towards him because he absolutely loves you. That's what the cross was about. Jesus died for everybody not just for some people. You know, our schools in some way need to be able to reflect the fact that they are a hospital for sinners, as the church should be, that, that our schools aren't about just trying to be a hotel for saints, as I always say. You know, and in every saint, there's a sinful past. You know, and in every sinner, there's often a yearning to become a saint. Now, that might look different, and it will look different for every child. But what is, can we as schools do is to at least enter into this conversation and actually have to learn to take a hold of Jesus' hand as well in the midst of this and to trust him with a lot of the questions that might be very challenging for us to answer. And sometimes we have to say, I don't know, but let's go and find out together. As you mentioned just very briefly then, you know, there was a teacher in my own school, you know, during a time when I was being sexually abused, often on a weekly basis, sometimes twice a week, and I didn't have a vocabulary to speak about this at the age of 8, 9, 10, 11 when this was happening to me. But there was one teacher at school who I think he recognised that there was an inner pain and a questioning within me. And there was a deep inner pain and a deep questioning within me. And he would hold my gaze, he'd give me his attention. And he'd smile and sometimes be half a smile, but it's almost as though he made a beeline to make sure that whenever he passed me, he saw me and recognised me and smiled. And I can tell you this is that man's smile kept me alive and vibrant. And I believed there was still good in the world in the midst of all that was happening to me. I was fearful of talking to my parents. And, you know, one of the things I do now is I've made really, really sure that there's nothing that's off limits in conversations with my daughter. I keep saying to her, you are in trouble for nothing. You know, and again, if I say no, there's greater yes. I said, there's no such thing as failure in this world. Everything is a learning opportunity. So let's bring it all into the light and not be scared of talking about it. You know, and, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm quite surprised what she shares with me. And I don't expect her to share everything. It's not, I don't need to know everything that's happening in my 13-year-old's life. But I need to be sufficiently present and aware of the fact that um, this is a young soul that's growing up in a world that promises her that everything's going to be fine and wonderful. But I've seen many people whose life journeys, particularly in high school, have really, really gone from rack to ruin. What you've said there is really good news for Christian teachers. As I said, we feel, and this goes for teachers more broadly, the pressures of time, perhaps more distinctly than ever before. There's, there's a lot to do. And when it comes to then understanding sexual orientation and gender identity, when it comes to getting across legislation, Many times we're starting to investigate a worldview that is alien to our own, that it is actually quite confusing. 
and quite complex. And while that's also complex, I think what you're saying here, James, is that the path towards accepting all students, loving all students, is actually quite simple. It, it can be as much as genuine eye contact and a smile, asking how things were going for them on the weekend, remembering a few key bits of information about a student who you think is suffering and, and engaging them on a regular basis. So you're saying even if we take these simple steps, that's actually making our school a place that is warm and inviting and promoting flourishing and growth in all of our students. That's right, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, as I mentioned um, earlier, I came out in high school. I was the first guy to come out in high school. Nobody had ever done it before. So in some ways, I felt like, you know, the um, the the, uh, the big cutting drill, you know, in, in, in the mine, you know, cutting away, you know, paving new ground in somewhere or other, which is why I was so passionate about my activism in the gay community. But I'll say this, at the age of 17, there was a very, very elderly, um, wise man at my school, um, a, a retired pastor, and um, he would come in periodically and he'd brush alongside the guys in years 11 and 12 in particular. And there was one day I went and knocked on the office, on, 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 on the door of, of his office at the school. And, and I went in and I said, um, I know people come and tell you stuff. And he said, yes, they do. He said, come in. I said, I want to tell you some stuff too. And he said, how do you want to do this? I said, well, I don't know how to do it, really. He said, well, maybe if you share a little bit of the stuff you might want to share, then we can, we can work it out as we go along. And he gave me permission just to sit there within the confines of these four walls where it was very private. There was me and him. And I opened my mouth and I didn't shut it for about an hour. And I told him my struggles with pornography. I told him my struggles with same-sex attraction. I told him I thought I was a woman inside. I told him that I'd been raped twice. I didn't use the word rape. I said I'd actually, you know, been sexual, these two older men. I later came to realise that I had very clearly said no, but I just thought that my no had been ignored as a child, so why should it be followed through with as an adult, or, or certainly as I entered adult years? But all I can say is this is, that man was there for me at the age of 17, and I poured out my heart to him. And I left that room 12 feet taller. Now, I still felt pretty short and a bit wet and weedy. That's how I describe myself in some way compared to other people. But nevertheless, that was another injection of somebody in the school setting that actually, I think, saved my life another time round. There was somebody smiling at me just before I entered puberty. And there was somebody else listening to me intensely with no judgment whatsoever, not trying to rectify things, not trying to sort things out, but bringing it back to the fact that I was still in the midst of what was my depravity, that I still had dignity, that I was still lovable, and that I was still young, and there was time, and it was important to keep speaking and to speaking to people I trusted, and to be careful, because there's some people you may not trust, so walk carefully. But he also said to me, my door will always be open to you. I never had to go back to his door again, but I knew it was there, and I knew it was gonna be open, and that's what made the difference. So, that's great news. That's great news. In a really complex field of study with a lot to wrap our heads around, for teachers, the path forward can actually be quite simple. 
engaging students, loving them well, listening to them. You've said something previously that really shocked me. You said often when you're entering into these sorts of discussions with people, you'll actually do nothing but listen. So you'll sit there, you'll smile, you'll nod, you might make a few facial expressions here and there, but you just let them turn on the tap and let it all come out and you sit there, much like that gentleman did for you, you sit there and listen. Again, that's a, that's a massively, that's a high value proposition for teachers because we, we can do that too. Is that, is that a piece of advice you would give to teachers? Don't jump in too soon. You might feel like you have the right answers here, but there, there's an execution risk if in the first five minutes of a student opening a conversation with you, you're, um, you're bringing a, a big bag of terminology and, uh, and, and opening it and emptying it out everywhere, you would say there's huge benefit in simply sitting and listening to a child. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, of course, what's happening for many of our kids in our Christian schools is that they're going to come forward, whether they're Christians or not, to identify that way or not. They know perfectly well the word of God and therefore they think that just because they might have attraction towards the other sex or just because they're struggling to be able to identify as male or female, that somehow they're rejected by God. So when they, if they dare to begin to have a conversation with the teacher, wow, celebrate their courage. And they're likely to be trying to work out straight away, you're going to reject me. Are you going to tell me I'm wrong? And they're almost thinking, let's get it over and done with. And then I can realise you are the bigot that actually Christians, I've been told Christians are. And it's important, therefore, that we show them that actually Christianity is not the slightest bit bigoted. Not, not true Christianity. It's not bigoted at all. It recognises that, you know, whether you're caught in adultery or you've had lots of husbands or you've been stealing taxes or whatever it is, you know, even just start raving dead in the tomb you could st still life when god comes into the picture <laughs> and a fullness of life as well you know how much your life stinks and you're decomposing and that's true of many of our souls they're decomposing in all sorts of places so why shouldn't they be in our young people too but that we stop and we listen you know in in the past what's happened is this is often the church has said if you behave and if you believe what we believe then we'll give you a place of belonging. But when I read the gospel message, and my experience of the gospel message has been this, I was given a place of belonging. I was given the opportunity to have exposed to me the beliefs about Jesus Christ and who he was uniquely in my life, a relationship in my life. And what happens, I began to believe in him. Then my behavior changed. And it didn't take massive effort either. I wanted to change my behaviour. I was realising that my boyfriend and I were both trying to find something in each other that neither of us had. And as you mentioned earlier on, you know, in some way God comes in abundance. I have friendships and intimacy, non-erotic intimacy with men today that I longed to have when I was younger. You know, I run men's groups and I run men's conferences. I run men's everything and all these different things. But also I get to understand the hearts of women too, which is great. So I'm a very, very rich man, very rich man, beyond my imagining and that's what you know paul said to the church in the ephesians glory be to him whose power at work in us can do infinitely more than we can even ask or imagine and that's what's been happening in my life and that's the message i would want in some way to bring to young people but listening 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 and often they'll say to us you know what's your opinion and what do you think etc and i always go back and say i want to hear the full story 
And your story is so important to me that I want to go away and reflect on it before I make any comment about anything. I just want you to know that I'm proud of you, that you're a person of courage and your story is so serious. It needs a lot of reflection and lots of very, very gentle responding. And that ties right in with what you said earlier about Christianity being a tale of getting more, not getting less. You're getting, and, and when you're talking about this, you're saying, we, we want to hear more of your story for the young people, not less. We don't want to shut you down. We don't want to hear you for five minutes and make a judgment about who you are and what you're going to be. We want to hear more of your story. We want to give you more options. We don't want to restrict the conversation we're having with you. We want to give you more options. And we want you to find more love. We want you to find more love than you will be able to find anywhere else. And we know that that's found in a, a saving faith, a saving interest in Christ Jesus. Well, James Parker, that's been a fantastic story for you to share and some useful wisdom that will no doubt help school leaders around Australia. Where can people go to find out more about the services you offer and more materials that you've contributed to? Well, basically, there's, um, uh, if you go to True Identity International on Facebook, we've got a Facebook page there with much information. There's different events that happen sometimes online where people can, can, can see me or any of the team. Um, we are actually building up a number of videos also on our YouTube channel at present. But Facebook and YouTube are the two key places to go to. Um, because even our own work is constantly changing. You know, we've thought maybe we've arrived, this is what we need to offer, and then we've been hit by a curveball. So uh, head to Facebook or head to YouTube. True Identity International is what we're called. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and, and God bless you as you continue with your ministry. Thank you very much indeed. God bless you too.